Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord on this beautiful day. It's raining, but it's a beautiful day. Amen? Every day is the Lord's day, and we will rejoice in it, right? Are you ready for some food? I mean, we're going to have breakfast this morning. We're continuing our, our series on going through the Bible, being anchored in his word. And today we're going to go through two books. Now, um, I'm a little jealous because last week there were four chapters that were covered. Today, we're going to cover 55 chapters. So I want you to put your seatbelts on and get ready because First and Second Samuel was actually considered one book when it was first written. And they divided it up because it was so long. And the book was written by an anonymous author. A lot of people think it was Samuel, but his, it was named after him, but it actually spans 135 years. So, and it's also focusing on certain characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. We're going to learn, primarily, we're going to look at Samuel first, and then we're going to look at Saul, who became the first king, and then David, who later on became the king and united the monarchy. And the key word I want you to look at is transition. There's a lot of transitions going on from the rule of God through the judges to the rule of God through the kings. The transition goes through three stages. It goes from Eli, who was the priesthood, onto Samuel, who became the last judge and prophet, and then on to the kings, Saul and then David. So we're going to recap together first, okay? Remember Exodus, they were uh, delivered from slavery, the Israelites, they left, and they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments, you know, the covenant of God. And they, when they went into the promised land, they were supposed to be faithful to God. But somehow you see how they failed miserably at that because we look at what the period of time during the judges, there was chaos and corruption. It was a time now for some moral leadership, for some faithful leaders. So the books and the two books, first and second Samuel, really provide us with a, a look at what that leadership was like. So Samuel, Samuel, this is a recap. Samuel was the, the first uh, leader mentioned. He was the prophet and the judge. Saul's story is told in two movements, his rise to power and then his huge failures. And it was followed by his tragic death. Uh, then we see, as Saul begins to rule, Israel was at a low point. Remember, there was corruption. The judges, do you remember one of the sayings in the book of Judges was, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. 
it was just chaos and and it was a mess and the drama of Saul's demise is matched as he fell it's matched by the rise of David and his success he had a wave of success and he also had tragic failure too slow self-destruction for his family and for the kingdom So that's a recap of 55 chapters, but now we're going to go and focus in on a few things. Part one picks up on the chaos. In the book of Judges, we meet a woman who, it's a touching story about Hannah. She was so grieved. She was never able to have children. And we find her being tormented by the second wife. See, her husband was a priest, Elkanah, and she was barren. And that was really shameful. So he married another woman, Penina, and she was able to bear children, and she constantly threw it into Hannah's face. And she was tormented by this. So we find her in the beginning of 1 Samuel praying to the Lord, pouring her heart out. Well, God answers her prayer, and she bears a son. But she vows that every day of his life will be devoted to the Lord's service. So... She dedicates him, and by God's grace, he's born. And she sings a song, a beautiful song. Um, We're going to summarize what the song said. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Despite human evil, God is working out his purposes, and God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, you remember Moses, he predicted that there would be a coming king, a sovereign king who would rule over all the nations. And it was this victorious king, this anointed one, that Hannah was anticipating. So after Samuel is weaned, she brings him to the temple, and he lives there in Shiloh in the temple with Eli, the high priest there. And it says, Samuel, even as a little boy, some say when it was weaning time, it was anywhere between three and five years old. So even as a little toddler, as a five-year-old, he was ministering before the Lord. But he never had a real personal encounter with the Lord. He was just going through the motions until one night something happened. Something changed. He was laying there at night. And he heard what he thought was Eli calling his name, Samuel. So he gets up, he runs to Samuel. He said, yes, here I am. He said, I didn't call you. And again, he goes back, he lays down. And again, he hears his voice, Samuel. Goes to Eli, and it repeats three times. And finally, Eli, the priest, realized this must be the Lord talking to him. He says, Samuel, go back to bed. When you hear that voice, I want you to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's what he did. And the first prophetic word that he received from the Lord was against the house of Eli. And he had to tell him. And this is what he said. This is what the Lord told him to say. At that time, I will carry against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to the end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. He had to deliver that message. And it says, 
The Lord was with Samuel from that point on. He grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, or, or Beersheba uh, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So he grows up, he becomes a great leader, he unites the people, and at the same time, the Philistines, the enemy of the Israelites, rise up in power. And there's a crucial battle, believe me, there's a few chapters here, but I'm trying to summarize it, there's a crucial battle, and the Israelites become so arrogant and prideful, rather than praying for God to intervene for them and inquiring of the Lord, you know what they do? They take the sacred Ark of the Covenant, which is in the temple, and they march it out. In the, let's read it. He, they, they treat it like a magical trophy. Here it is, chapter 4. The soldiers returned to camp. The elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord, who was enthroned between the cherubim and Eli. These are the the sons of Eli, these are the priests. They, Hopni and Phineas, they were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. See, they were so out of touch. They were so corrupt as priests. They thought, they thought this was a good idea. And it was because of their pride and the presumption that God allowed them to lose the battle. The Ark was captured by the Philistines. Now, Eli, when he got the news, it said he got the news. He, he was old. He was blind. He was obese. He was sitting by the wayside, and the news came. His two sons were killed in battle. And that wasn't bad enough. When he heard that the ark was captured, it says he fell backward. And because of his weight, he broke his neck and died. It was the corruption of the priesthood that allowed this to happen in this crucial battle. And like I said, the, the ark was lost. The priesthood was disrupted. The, the priest and his sons were gone. There was no priest there to represent the people. And worse, the glory of the Lord departed from the tabernacle. So the Philistines, wow, they thought they captured the ark and they won the battle and they took the ark of the covenant and they had the pride and the, the gall to think that they could place it in their temple of their false god, Dagon. So they put the ark of the covenant there and the next day, you know what happened? The, the idol was, fell down off its pedestal flat on its face. And as if that message wasn't clear enough, they took it, put it back on the pedestal. The next day, when they came in to their temple, there was their God decapitated with the palms removed. And they got the message. The message was, even without an army, their God was defeated. That our God, the Israelite God, defeated them. Now, that was a common thing. Whenever they went to battle and they uh, defeated a kingdom, they would take the king and decapitate them. And that was clearly what God was showing them. 
So the ark, they kept the ark, and they, they moved it from city to city, and they, wherever it went, there was disease and uh, tumors and sickness. And finally they said, we don't want this ark anymore. We're going to send it back. So they sent the ark back, and they sent it back on a cart, and the Israelites got a hold of it. And you know what happened? They mistreated the ark. They looked inside the ark. Nobody could do that but the high priest. Nobody. They mishandled it, and 70 Israelite uh, people were destroyed that day. And here's the point. The reason I mention this is that God is not a trophy. He opposes the proud, whether it was the Philistines or whether it was the Israelites. Israel, in order for them to have a a blessing of the covenant, they had to remain obedient to him in every way. So here we're at a transition. Samuel, now the priesthood's gone. Samuel begins to function as the last of the recorded judges and the first of the recorded prophets. And his prophetic ministry brings revival The ark returns, the Philistines are subdued, and it says the ark remained in this particular city for 20 years. And Samuel gets older. And here we find him in chapter 8. He's old, so he appoints. Everybody say appoints. He appoints his sons to become his successor. But see, there's a difference between appointing and anointing. Can I hear an amen? It wasn't Samuel's job to bring in the successor because his sons, especially, they were corrupt too. They didn't walk in his ways. They accepted bribes. They perverted justice. And sadly, Samuel was aware of this. But he wanted to appoint them anyway. So here's where we lead into the next transition because because the people knew about the, uh, the sons, and they knew that they weren't up for the job, they started to demand a king. We want a king, like all the other nations around us. Let's read this in Samuel 8. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to the people, to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. See, they were looking with eyes of flesh. They were looking for a solution that everybody else had. And Samuel warned them. You know, the Lord said, yeah, okay, give him a king. But there was a warning that went with it. And here it is, chapter 8, verse 11. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of you of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of the thousand and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. 
And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you've chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You would think that after hearing that, they would say, forget it. We're sorry. We don't want a king. But the next verse is so sad. Verse 19 says, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. We want what all the other nations have. They wouldn't listen. I think of this as like maybe like when my kids were little, you know, they wanted something. They kept bugging me and they bugging me and bugging me, you know, and, and you explained all the reasons why it wasn't a good idea, but they wanted it anyway. And sometimes we let them have it and there would be consequences because of that wrong choice. And, you know, we, we do that too. Every one of us can shake our heads. Sometimes we think, well, God, I know that could happen, but it's not going to happen to me. I'll take my chances, right? But God finally says, I, I just picture him saying, oh, heed the voice of the people and give them, give them their king. And I think there's some parenting lessons here we could probably glean, right? So here's the next transition. Saul was chosen as king. And Samuel was instructed, and I'm reading a lot from scripture, Amen. He says, about this time tomorrow, I'll send, you, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him. Everybody say anoint. Anoint. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for the cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern the people. And the Lord told Samuel to anoint him as one destined to rule. And if you remember, as we've been studying through the Bible, the only things that were anointed before previously were the things that were in the temple and the priest, the high priest. In the Old Testament, it was the utensils and, 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 the, and the priests. And it pictured their holy status before God. And from this point on, we see... The mention of anointing refers only to kings in the Old Testament. And it foreshadows the messianic king because Messiah means the anointed one. So in their impatience, they demand a king. They choose the less than best and their motive and their criteria are all wrong. So let's look at Saul. Let's look at this historical figure. What were his credentials? Well, we know he was tall. He was good looking. Uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He seems like a great candidate when you look this way. But he had deep character flaws. He's dishonest. He lacks integrity. He's unable to acknowledge his mistakes. His traits become his downfall, as we'll soon see. While he does win some battles, in the earlier days, he blatantly disobeys God's commands. Even here on the first assignment, Samuel gave him his first assignment from the Lord. And here's what he said. He instructs him to wait for seven days until Samuel instructs him, wait for seven days until I come back. Okay. And Saul is the commander of the army and he's in a tough battle and he's losing this battle with the Philistines. Some of the army deserts him, and he panics. 
because he's looking with eyes of flesh. So here's what it says in chapter 13. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops who were with him were quaking with fear. Then he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the offering and the fellowship offerings. And Samuel offered up the burnt offering. Just as he was finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering that you didn't come, he's blaming it on him, you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I've not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Excuse me, let me get water. So his sin wasn't in the fact that he made a sacrifice, but he overstepped his authority. He wasn't supposed to act in the priestly role. His matters were civic matters as a king. And here in his pride, he thought that he could offer the offering. So he, again, you see, Saul's reaction was based on what he saw, not on faith. He wasn't believing God at his word. He feared losing his men. And he didn't consider what God had in mind. So at this point, we see Saul's judgment is all over the place. He makes a foolish vow and he tells the men um, in a a very serious battle, they can't eat. And Jonathan wins a victory and he doesn't know about this oath, this vow. And he eats some honey. And when he does, he breaks the oath. And his father wants to kill him. It's just foolishness. Of course, he's not allowed to kill him. The men wouldn't have any, any of that. So God gives Samuel one more chance. We see this in chapter 15. And I think God made it real clear. He, he made it so specific on what he wanted Saul to do. And here's chapter 2, two and 3. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now, God gave Saul an opportunity to redeem himself here with obedience. But Saul failed the test once again because of his incomplete obedience. Agag was spared, and, he, and Saul was motivated by the people. They were greedy, and they wanted the choice spoils for themselves. Here, let's take a look at this, chapter 15. This is what Saul did. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, and all the people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army, notice the two of them, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then the Lord, the, uh, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made King Saul because he has turned away from me and carried, not carried out my instructions. So the next day, Samuel knows all that happened, and he goes to meet uh, Saul. And when he reached Saul, Saul says this, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, Then what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? And Saul answered the soldiers, uh, answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. You, you see, he blamed the soldiers. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough. You know, you can't fool me. Enough, Samuel says to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. And finally, he says, why didn't you obey? Why didn't you listen to the Lord? But I did obey. That's what Saul says. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag and their king. And the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder. The best was devoted to God in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice he's not going to say my God to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But he didn't obey. He did it his way. It was a cover-up, and it wasn't the soldiers. That was a lie. He was the king. He had authority and rule over what was done. He was blame-shifting. Same thing was happening in the garden, right? Blame-shifting. But here's the transition. Key verses. These are key verses in in the book of 1 Samuel. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's commandments and instructions. I was afraid of the men, and and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Well, it sounds genuine there, right? Look further in verse 30. Saul says, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me that I may worship your God. See, he wasn't really, he was more concerned with his reputation before the elders. And he wasn't really sincere. He was motivated by the appreciation and the approval of man, his own image. And so this is the the third major movement here or transition we see. Samuel, this is the first, this is the second book of Samuel. We're in the second book already now. And we see Samuel is mourning for Saul as if he died. Now we know he didn't die, but he knows that he's 
totally separated from God at this point. So it leads him on to prepare the next successor and anoint the next king. And here, while we could spend a whole one sermon on this one message, but briefly, he tells him to go to Jesse, who has eight sons, and anoint the future king. And Saul sees good-looking guys, and one by one, God says, I don't see the way man sees. I look at the heart. And he chooses the youngest son, David, to be king. And he anoints him in the presence of all his brothers. And it says, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then at the same time as David begins to ascend, we see in verse 16, um, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's attendants said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play the lyre, the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. And isn't it amazing here that God uses what is, has befallen Saul, this tormenting spirit, And he introduces David into the court. God is always working out his plan. And here he's introduced as a sweet psalmist. And the next chapter we see him depicted as the warrior. And again, we could spend one whole sermon on David and Goliath and that battle. But you're all familiar with it. And I'll just read a few verses. Chapter 8, I mean, chapter 17, verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you're the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your servants. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And here we see this Goliath taunted them for 40 days. And they were greatly concerned because, again, they're looking with eyes of the flesh. And they were afraid. It's only natural that Goliath would be their worst nightmare. But... Here comes David. He's not even part of the army. He's bringing supplies to his brothers. And he overhears that taunt, the same taunt. And he says, I'm going to take up that. I'm going to do something about this. So he decides immediately to take up the cause. And, And he comes to Saul, and Saul wants to fit him with his own weapons. And boy, that's a whole message right there. But but here's what it says. David rejects the weapons, and he chose to what he used in the past that the Lord helped him while he was a shepherd. And here's what he says. As I've been keeping my father's sheep, when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and kill it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. 
And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So he goes out to battle, this giant. Goliath came out in his own flesh, in his own name. And David came out to battle, not in Saul's name, but in the name of the Lord of hosts. David, we know David. David was the least likely candidate for king when we saw him among his brothers. But this is what set him apart. This famous story, his radical trust, his humble trust in the God of Israel. And this story embodies what Hannah said in the beginning, right? God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Goliath and Saul both were opposed and brought low. But David was exalted. And, and so in the rest of 1 Samuel, we watch, we, we see that Saul descended into madness. He really did. Irrational. He wins some battles. And David, we see David after this battle. He's placed as commander of his army, and he's winning more and more battles, and he's getting the accolades of the people, and everybody's praising him, and Saul gets so jealous, and he wants to kill him because he recognizes he has a tormenting spirit from the Lord. He recognizes the anointing of the Lord is on David, and it's departed from him. So he sends him, he wants to get rid of David. He sends him on a suicide mission. And he says, if you battle the force, uh, the, the Philistines and come back with like a thousand foreskins, then, you know, you could win my daughter. He just set him on a mission where he thought it would be impossible to win, but he wins. And he marries Saul's own daughter. Talk about a turnaround, right? So in a jealous, jealous rage, twice, he tries to pin him to the wall and murder him himself. Finally, David has to run for his life, and he goes throughout the wilderness, hides in caves, and he has two opportunities because Saul is chasing him. He has two opportunities to kill King Saul, but he doesn't do it because he recognizes God's anointing. Eventually, Saul even realizes it and confesses it to David, but they part their ways, and it's a sad ending We see Saul is so out of touch with the Lord that he actually consults a witch. He goes to see a medium because he wants to hear from the Lord. How messed up is that? But he comes to a grisly end. He and his three sons are killed in battle. And as I mentioned before, they cut off his head, the enemy. They place his body on the wall. And that's how we end that particular book. Second Samuel picks up after, after this battle. And we see Saul returns from battle with his men. And he finds Ziklag, which was his home base, was raided by the Ammonites. And they stole their, the wives of, of all the warriors. And they are ticked off. And they actually want to kill David. But here, here's where we see David's character. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord, and he inquired of the Lord, what do I do, Lord? 
And he gets the green light, go attack the Israelites. And he does. And the Lord brings victory and he's able to get his, all the wives back and everything that was taken. Everything was recovered. But that's what David did. He inquired of the Lord at every step. But there was still one hurdle. Saul had one remaining son, Ishobeth, and he rebelled against David, didn't want him to be king, so he set himself up to be king. And we see in a little short while, he is murdered. So Israel rallies around David, and they say, yes, we want you to be king. We want to you to unify us. And, and the first thing David does is he takes the ark that was in Kirath-Jerim, and he brings it to Jerusalem because he wants it to be in the city of God. But here's a chapter sandwiched in between here in chapter 5. We see something, and David took more concubines and wives, and he had more sons. Now, we know polygamy is not of God, really. It was God. It was permitted, but it was not something that God ordained. Remember in the garden, it was one man, one woman to become one. Polygamy was just permitted. It wasn't God's idea. And this is trouble. And I see this as a character flaw in David because in generations later and in books later, you'll see how this character flaw affected the future. But in chapter 6, the ark is brought back, and David has in his mind, I want to bring, I want to build God a house. I want to put the ark in a permanent home. And God says, I want to do this, and God answers, I mean, uh, David says, I want to do this, and God answers him, and he says, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need a house, but I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. So we see in chapter 7, this is like, this is so important in the storyline of the whole Bible. God makes a promise to David in this story that in his royal line, the future Messiah would come, that God would set up a permanent temple. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And again, we could spend a whole week on that. Um, and it's the king that's connected to the promise of Abraham. Remember, all nations of the world would be blessed through him. And this future messianic kingdom would be Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the high point of David's reign. I mean, he's like riding the wave right now. And it's at this point that things go terribly wrong. In the middle of God's blessing, God, David makes a fatal mistake, and it's not fatal really for him. It's fatal for one of his warriors, Uriah. And let's read it. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her, and now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanliness. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. When kings go out to war, he didn't go. He was in the wrong place. 
at the wrong time. He sent men to find out about this woman. First of all, men, my husband and I went on a marriage retreat about 30 years ago, and he never forget this, and I always remind him too. Whenever you, you know, a temptation or a scantily clad woman comes past him, um, he was told it, to bounce, to just don't look, don't stare, just bounce. And so if I ever see him looking, I'll say, bounce. <laughs> but see, David, he knew this woman was married. He knew it. He should have, when he got word, he should have just said, forget this. I'm sorry, Lord. He shouldn't even looked. Should have bounced. So what does he do? He hears this news so he sends for Uriah to come, and here's Uriah in, from the battlefield, and he tries to trick him and send him back to Bathsheba so he could sleep with her, and then they could pretend the pregnancy is from him. But he's a noble man. He, he figures, I came back from battle. All my men are back there sleeping in the field, and he sleeps by the palace guards. He refuses to go in. And the next night, David does the same thing, and he gets him drunk, and he figures, okay, he's drunk, he's going to go home this time. He doesn't. does the same thing. So here he sends a letter to the commander. He sends Uriah back, and he says, Uriah, you go back, and, um, you know, God be with you. And he actually sends him on a suicide mission because in the letter, he tells the commander to place Uriah in the front line and then withdraw from him. So he's killed. He has him assassinated. And David thinks, yeah, you know, after a period of time, he marries Bathsheba. She mourns for a while. He marries her. Everything's cool. Nobody knows. God knows. So he sends a prophet, Nathan, to confront him with a parable. I love this parable. Verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared its food. It was more like a pet. It drank from his cup, and It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal to the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Look at this. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, actually of the Ammonite. And you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Wow, David must have been shivering. You're the man. But he immediately owns up. It's not like when Saul was confronted. He owns up and he's broken and he repents and he asks God to forgive him. And God does forgive him, but he doesn't erase the consequences of his sin. That child dies in Bathsheba. But in God's mercy, just to fast forward a little bit, even though that child dies, in God's mercy, the next child that Bathsheba bears, his name is Solomon. And he goes on later on to become king. So that's God's grace. But as a result of the horrible choices that David makes, everything falls apart in his family. Do you know that what you do and what you model to your children speaks volumes to them? David's sons end up reliving their father's mistakes. And we see in the next chapter something far worse, a tragedy. You see, Tamar, David's daughter, is raped by her half-brother, Amnon. It's a story of lust and rape and hatred and shame. But his, his lust is nothing more than sensual desire because once he's gratified, he, he turns to hatred. And Tamar's other brother, Absalom, is incensed. He is so angry, and he's waiting for justice because his sister is now a lifetime of shame. Two years he waits, and David doesn't do a thing. David failed. Yeah, he was angry. It says in the Bible he was angry, but he didn't take any justice, no justice for Tamar. He didn't punish Amnon for his crime. Actually, Levitical law, he should have been stoned. He abdicated his role as king and as father. See, lack of discipline and justice will always bring negative results. And there's always consequences. There's a ripple effect. Justice must be fair and it must be quick. Two full years. And finally, Absalom had him assassinated, and he has to flee for his life. <clears throat> you see, there's a repeated pattern here in First and Second Samuel, I see. I see Samuel. You see, remember Eli failed to discipline his sons, the priests, and what happened? You see, the same thing happened with Samuel's sons. They, didn't, they, they were not raised in a way where they could serve as um, prophet to be his successor. And now we see these sons acting shamefully like this. And I think of it like weeds. You know, I I love to garden. A lot of you know that. And weeds are like incessant, right? They're always there. And if you can nip them early, they're easy to get rid of. 
But if you let them go, it's like hard to get them out. I mean, you put them by a sidewalk, they could lift a sidewalk. You, you put them by a fence, they could move a fence. And that's how weeds are. If you don't nip things in the bud, parents, I'm telling you, if you don't nip it in the bud, those weeds are going to be very hard to remove. Sila, think of it. That's why the Bible says, train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. So David, after years, they're reconciled. Absalom comes back. He bows before him. But there is a seed of resentment. And Absalom, behind his back, becomes, um, he plots behind his back, and he wants to take over the throne. David's so busy with warfare, and he's getting old, he doesn't even notice. So he hatches this plot to oust his father from power, and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And for a second time, David is forced to run, to run into the wilderness, Absalom is, and his army is fighting against his army. Of course, Absalom dies. Again, I'm condensing things. And in the course of this time, he, Absalom dies. David relents. We find David back on the throne, a broken man, wounded by the consequences of his own sin. And in the last section of the book, it concludes with some of the things we remember Hannah said. Despite David and Saul's failures, their sins and their evil, God has been at work. He carried out his purposes. God opposed their arrogance and pride time and time again. And whenever David humbled himself, he was exalted. And by the end of the book, we see David himself. He's looking to the future, to the future Messiah, who will bring God's kingdom and blessing to all the nations. So in summary, we see the book of First and Second Samuel is really a book of character studies. And where sometimes we can look there and we can see ourselves. Where do you see yourself? In Saul, we see a warning. We see it's crucial that we obey God. That's what the Lord desires of us. We can see we need to humble ourselves. With God's help, we could overcome whatever flaws that we have. David is presented his character as a one of patience and trust, trust in God's timing, trust that God is working all things together for the good. Even while he was being chased by Saul, he, when he had every reason to think that God was abandoning him, he didn't think that. He was encouraged. Despite human evil, God is working out his purpose to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. So we see weaknesses, and we see consequences in these character studies for future generations. And some other things we could glean from these two historical books is the sovereignty of God. Despite the corruption and the chaos that was going on, and we could say that today, there is chaos in the world. There is corruption in the world. Not only our nation, but look at what's happening in the world. Despite what was happening then, Samuel was born. Despite what is happening now, God has a plan, and God is working behind the scenes. Amen. You could say amen. 
Here's something else we can glean, the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was empowering men for divinely appointed tasks. He gave Samuel the role of prophet, and the Spirit of the Lord fell upon Saul and fell upon uh, David so that they could win and be victorious in battle. And today, every single one of the believers in Christ can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish whatever task the Lord has for you. And that deserves an amen. Amen. Now, these books demonstrate that personal and national sin can affect the nation. Personal and national sin, it can affect the nation. That's reverse in this slide, I think. Eli and his sons resulted, remember, the whole priesthood was disrupted, and they died because they had no reverence for God. They, They chose to use the Ark of the Covenant like it was a lucky charm, and it led to the death, not only to the priesthood, but also to the Israelites who looked into the Ark. Saul's disobedience resulted in the Lord's judgment on the nation and his rejection as king. And all the days of his reign, there was war and they never won. Although David was forgiven, he confessed he was forgiven of adultery and murder when he confessed to Nathan. He still suffered the inevitable consequences of his sin. Would he model to his children That sin was visited to the next generation and beyond. It affected his legacy, future kings, his lineage, as you'll see in the next couple books that we study. So we see right now, as I'm concluding, Hannah's poem. Hannah's poem said that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. He opposed Eli and his sons because they abused the priesthood, the abuse of the ark. Saul took credit for his own victories. He overstepped his role as king and tried to make the offering. He was disobedient. David was exalted when he defeated uh, Goliath. And David inquired of the Lord, and he waited for the results. He was humble. Despite human evil, God is working out his purposes There was evil in the priesthood, fatherhood failure, you would say, with Eli and Samuel and David, the murderous attempts against David by Saul, even David's problem with lust, the murder. Even with that, Solomon was born. And one day, God will raise up an anointed king. Second Samuel says this, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And in the very last chapter of this second uh, book of Samuel, David says this, he gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Because we know from the seed of David The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come and rule and reign forever. And we await his second coming. Hallelujah. And the way things look, it's not going to be too long. It's going to happen soon. Are you ready? Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. 
Lord, your word is powerful. It's instruction. Lord God, we see character studies here in these books, Lord. We see flaws. We see warnings. We see instructions, God. Lord, we need to rely on you and trust in you. Lord God, forgive us for any pride or presumption. Forgive us, Lord. As parents, Lord God, we realize the importance, our role as modeling for our children, Lord God, the role modeling that's reaching future generations, God. Lord, we don't want the sins of ourselves or even previously to visit on our children to the third and fourth generation, God. We confess and we repent and we can be forgiven by God's mercy and we could break any curse or any consequence that would befall our children in Jesus' name. Jesus can break the chains. So we surrender right now. We accept Christ's sacrifice. We, we can live our lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing what you desire to do, and we can leave a godly legacy. Lord God, I thank you and I praise you, God, for you are working out your plan. You are sovereign God. You rule and reign. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.